thank you so much, Dane, um, Annette, Binner, for inviting me to this. And uh, I, I think the whole the, the series of um, workshops or plenaries or whatever you're calling them that you're putting together around this is, is extraordinary. And I hope that at some point we can find a way to uh, kind of learn, those of us that have not, are not able to be at all of them, to learn through them in a sense. Because... For me, the, the discussion around economics, which is something that I've talked about elsewhere but won't, won't, be, won't, won't be touching on so much today, is, is super important, really important, if one thinking, is thinking about how arts organisations might, might unlearn habits, then one of the founding unlearnings needs to, um, needs to happen um, within the economic zone. So how does one work with, uh, with budgets? Um, you know, and where does one, how does one understand the politics of budgeting, in a sense? And Binner and I have exchanged on this before. Um, and actually, the, the concept of unlearning, and Annette, I'm sure this is also a, a reference in your mind, always reminds me of Cornelius Cardew, who, um, who is a, a, um, a, uh, was a composer, sadly died slash was murdered um, in the 1980s, who, who um, had a very important... Um, uh, organization called the Scratch Orchestra that anybody could join. I don't know whether people are aware of it. And one of their most famous processes was called the Great Unlearning. Um, and it was about unlearning compositionist and music strategies. And on a personal note, when I was a child, my parents used to take me to Cornelius Cardew um, concerts. And they were so boring. Because they would last for like 10 hours... You know, I mean, luckily you could just fall asleep on a cushion with a, something to hit, you know, and you'd wake up occasionally and, like, hit something and then go back to sleep. But so I had this kind of... I had this physical experience of calling this card you when I was a kid. Anyway, so um, I'm going to read, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that it's so formal, but um, I use these opportunities, and I thank you again for the opportunity to try and advance ideas that I'm kind, kind of... that are, at, like, in my forehead that aren't really properly thought through. So apologies in advance. Um, uh, but I think they're really important because my, uh, despite the kind of um, the the kind of pretense that academics, you know, sit in rooms and and um, think of brilliant ideas and then broadcast them to the world, of course, that's not what happens. What we do is we're part of the common world, and we and we. I don't know why you're looking at like me like that, Nora. Because um, yeah. nobody thinks that. No, absolutely not. I was just thinking about the, my difficulties to write. That's it. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, so, so, but so, so I'm, I'm just. Uh, so, so this is a kind of a thought process that I'm. That is my response to the questions that have been put to me by the site of unlearning. Okay, and and as Binna said, I'm very interested in arts or in arts organisation. So the organisation of art at an institutional level. But I'm going to start here at a kind of side from that um, by talking about, um, as I think it says in the material you have, by talking about this idea um, of the imperial periphery, which I get from um, uh, uh, a, an Indian now working in the States, um, post-colonial scholar called Leela Gandhi. So I'm, I'm going to read, um, and so, but it's a warm, boring afternoon out there, so you can fall asleep, or <laughs> it's probably going to rain again. We should probably have some sofas and cushions, so don't worry, I won't be offended if I see your eyelids going like this. Okay, so, I came to Leela Gandhi's book, Affective Communities, um, the full title of which is Effective Communities, Anti-Colonial Thought, Fan de Siècle Radicalism and the Politics of Friendship. The, the, the importance for me of reading out the whole of the, the title is because I think the politics of friendship um, is an important factor in many of the things that we, we think and talk about when we think about institutional change and forming networks of solidarity in order to be able to do so. Politics of Friendship also, of course, is a reference to Jacques Derrida, whose book on friendship was incredibly important to me when I was doing my PhD. That's an aside. Anyway, so I came to Leela Gandhi's book, Affective Communities, whilst preparing for a research trip to West Bengal to visit the settlement of Shantiniketan, the site of Rabindranath Tagore's experimental arts school and craft community set up by Tagore, the very famous Indian poet and kind of 
polymath in 1901. Lila Gandhi was introduced to me by the curator Grant Watson, who set up a Tagore research group with me whilst still a curator at INOVA, the Institution of International Visual Arts in London. In turn, Grant, who has been incredibly influential as a thinker, as a kind of thinko in solidarity for me over a number of years. In turn, Grant is a member of the organizational group Practice International, which Casco is also a part of, and who are publishing a book currently. We are in the process of publishing a book that will be out very soon. Um, that, that actually contains some, uh, a, a great interview with Leela Gandhi and also a text by Leela Gandhi, um, some of which I'm going to be quoting from here. Didn't ask for permission, but anyway, there you go. You know, it's not quite in the public domain yet, but it will be. Okay, so, so it's important already that I'm describing a network of, of support and friendship um, that, that, that is implicit in the ideas that I'm, I'm working with here. Our interests in Leela Gandhi, who, as you might recognize by the surname, I think is the granddaughter of Gandhi, the famous Gandhi, collide. I, I, that's quite important in her writing, actually. So our interests in Gandhi collide and overlap fruitfully. And so I thought it worthwhile pursuing a part of her ideas here, as it is useful to me to push further my experiment in thinking and, and trying to imagine enacting to see if one concept offers a, in particular, one concept that she offers in particular can be applied to the field of contemporary artistic and curatorial production. So already there is something, as I've said, to be said about this set of concerns and people circulating, some of whom are in this room, uh, and how they begin to define my territory. As I think they illustrate Gandhi's um, uh, Gandhi's ideas through ideas of friendship and solidarity. But I'm concerned that there is also a negative aspect to such an overlapping of ideas, passions, affiliations, based on affective relations, or what Gandhi calls affective relations. I want to think through, therefore, this idea of the imperial periphery, the term, the term she uses, to see if it has political potency for our contemporary political situation, particularly those of us who work in and around contemporary art. And by our contemporary situation, I'm talking about um, uh, a Europe, you know, I'm working in Sweden, living in London, sitting in uh, the Netherlands, a Europe that is on the verge of an extremely racist turn, a Europe on the verge of collapse, a precarious and violent political edifice that we really need to be concerned by in our work. So even though um, here I'm going back to ideas that are very influenced by Indian modernism um, and referencing often events that have taken place in, um, you know, a hundred years previously to us now, I think that it's really important that we keep at the forefront of our imaginations continuously the violent insurgency of, of right-wing power and, um, and the affectivity of that within the modes through which we work. We have to remember that it's not just the left that, that has learned to love concepts of affectivity. The right is very good at mobilizing it too. So anyway, so I try constantly to keep this in my mind and, not, and, and so does Gandhi actually. So, so what is this thing, the imperial periphery? Leela Gandhi names certain people and their modes of living as actors who work at and exist at the imperial periphery. This term she mainly uses to describe the many European actors who, by actors I mean, so it's a, it's a, a degendered concept of, of people, although many people would also include objects and animals in the term actor, but Gandhi's talking about people. So she uses the term to describe the many European actors who were, and perhaps still, belong educationally and culturally to the imperial centre. So here we could say the Netherlands and its colonial histories and ongoing colonialisms. But choose to learn from and become further radicalised by relations with actors moving beyond the empire. She is particularly focused on India as it moves into modernity alongside the movement of the Swaraj, or home rule, in the early 19th century, um, and as it moves towards independence in 1947. So this is the area that she's, as a post-colonial theorist, been engaged with for a long time. Gandhi um, locates certain people at this time, members of the colonial class, looking at different practices of the self, 
And through this developing deep connections and small and subtle actions of anti-imperialism, in the backwaters of colonial administration and in the crossovers between religious, educational, civic, and managerial affiliation. Um, one of the other people, one of the other things that Grant Watson focuses on, and I don't know whether people are familiar with his work as a curator um, and a teacher, is um, he looks at, at um, concepts of the self and care of the self. Um, he's very, um, very involved at the moment in a long-term project that has a number of partners, including If I Can't Dance, um, and Casco, I don't know whether you've been involved in this, a number of people, the showroom in London, of producing series of video portraits of people he finds incredibly interesting because of the ways in which they are reinterpreting care of the self within the context of them. And obviously, not obviously, care of the self is something he picks up from Michel Foucault's, um, I was going to call it medium work, I mean work he did in the middle of his life, not medium qualitatively. Okay. So in an interview with Grant Watson, um, uh, Gandhi describes these people that, that she considers at the imperial periphery in this way. So this is a quote. I've been working on post-colonial theory for a while and have begun to weary of the east-west colonizer-colonized binary, tediously on the upswing again these days. So I felt, and this interview took place last year, so this is her analogy. So she's saying that this, 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 this binary is something that is becoming apparent again, particularly in Europe at the moment. To continue her quote, so I felt this strong desire to track a genealogy of friendship, that extraordinary form of elective, non-instrumental relationality between Westerners and non-Westerns in the era of modern imperialism. And this led me, quite by chance, into the subcultural Liebenschwelt, sorry, uh, Germans amongst us, so um, life world, of late Victorian Western anti-imperialism. Homosexuals, vegetarians, diet and dress faddists, and spiritualists whose transnational imagination and commitments were, nonetheless, based on very small practices of the self. Of course, to go back to where we begin this conversation, she's talking there in the context of talking to Grant, these practices of self, cultivating gender ambiguity, male celibacy, dressing simply, not eating meat, and so on, seemed at first glance to be distinctly para-anti-imperial, as it were, very much in the shadows of the great movements of anti-colonial nationalism that were brewing at the time. So anti-para-anti-institutional. Para, so alongside anti-institutionalism, to continue her quote, that their truth was precisely in the shadows and minnows and something that could in fact be distorted by conventional historiographical recuperation, I only learnt by degrees. To carry on the quote, effective communities was about the best of Europe, the self-critical traditions that would evolve into practices of conscientious subjection in the 20th century and which made it possible at an earlier moment for so many British people, she's talking there particularly, I guess because she's talking to Grant, to condemn imperialism and to choose friends over country, sometimes at great personal risk. So she's making a connection there with the, 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 um, the pacifist movements that were... Um, very present and uh, very um, uh, um, ostracized within the First World War particularly. So Gandhi are writing on what she terms affective rather than historically cited communities. So she's, affective communities are communities that might gather across time and space. So across territories and across geographies, but also across histories. So that's important. So she's, she's not talking very specifically about you know, a particular site in India or the UK at a particular moment. So, um, so she suggests that colonial fantasies of antagonism between ethnicities, powers, and nations are based on what she calls, and I think this is super important for where we are today, a craving, this is a quote for her, a craving for the hygiene of oppositionality that might fend off the, what she calls, psychic contagion of cosmopolitanism 
as it exists on pragmatic and subjective grounds. Now, I think if we look at um, what's happening in Europe right now, we can see very clearly this, um, this craving for the hygiene of oppositionality in the rise of the right, in the lack of the response from the left, to the ongoing and um, hope, uh, hopefully to be eradicated but concerningly influential movement of peoples towards new versions of fascism who need oppositionality to survive. So she's saying that at the imperial periphery, what she's trying to establish in this term, the imperial periphery, being on the side or being next to, or being on the edge of the empire, is a place where you begin to stop or annul or um, make more ambiguous the possibility of putting fire under oppositionality, because it's oppositionality that produces violence and fascism. It is here that this concept of being at the imperial periphery might begin to register with certain forms of making, artistic, educational, social. Shall I wait till you come in? Hey, hi, no, of course. Somebody behind you. Okay, I'll start that sentence again. It's here that this concept of being at the imperial periphery might begin to register with certain forms of making, artistic, educational, social. Forms of making that can both be identified in types of practice and register, certainly with me, a sort of fear regarding the lack of political affiliation such a condition brings. So what I'm saying is that to be on the imperial periphery should not be um, uh, eulogized, should not be immediately grasped as a kind of, um, as a, as a kind of preconditional political space or prefigurative political space in which we can be um, anti-fascist or we can enact stuff that um, allows the world to change. It's also a difficult place to be. It's a place that it is really difficult to work within. And I think artists and curators and, and um, organizers and their co-workers um, often find that difficulty, often find themselves marginalized within their institutions, by funding bodies, um, by their audiences. So it's a very difficult place to be. But nevertheless, Gandhi um, at least thinks that it's it's a place we should pursue. So, but yet, in this rejection of antagonism or oppositionality, as, um, as Gandhi calls it, and in its embrace of what she calls psychic contagion, Gandhi's naming of the imperial proliferalization ah, also offers an interesting mode of understanding and pursuing new ways of social endeavor within the arts institution. So that's what I'm gonna pursue. To be on the imperial periphery, thus, is to acknowledge one's part in structures of power and to use them against themselves. So to be on the imperial periphery is not to be without power. It's to acknowledge in oneself and in one's institutional affiliations that part of one that is part of the empire, is, is the imperial. And at the same time, to move alongside it or to move, move within it, to think of different ways of being. And I think this is something that, that this, this, this doubling, if you will, or this, this, this ambivalence is something that many cultural workers find them, find, feel and find themselves working within, and yet don't have the language to be able to return in a form of alternative power in order to say, yes, I am part of an empirical and empire-based uh, structure here. I am part of a national, I am part of a transnational, I am part of the West, I have become part of the West, and yet, I'm looking at Binner there, <laughs> but, but not as a criticism, um, my dear. But, um, but because we need to acknowledge the sites of please come in. <laughs> you thought you were going to be subtle there, didn't you? Um, 
There's one right at the front. <laughs> um, but it is to be part of um, a f an acknowledgement and a returning, or um, what the situationists will call, the situationists would have called a detournement of that power. Although I'm not advocating situationism as a political tactic, I need to be clear about that. So uh, to be on the imperial periphery is to acknowledge one's part in structures of power and to use them against and repurpose them. So against themselves and to repurpose those modes of power. This would seem to be one way of reading the condition. To be an administrator in colonial Bengal, for instance, in the 1920s, and to help villages and towns self-organize for example, or to begin to help women in the same situation learn to read and write in Bengali is one way in which Leela Gandhi kind of cites this imperial peripherization. Okay, so so the um, so so this is this so and I will go on. I'm going to now go into a particular example of it. Okay, but as this example will show, the one I'm about to show you. The conditions of such a situation are not only political, but they are deeply psychologically antagonistic to practices of life in the sight of the empire. And this comes back to something that Grant Watson has been endeavouring to articulate with his interviews that I would um, encourage you all to see if you can. In fact, he's about to, or is in the process of conducting a set of interviews in um, India that that are very much geared towards thinking through these ideas and thinking through, through these ideas in the light of what he has learned from his conversations with Leela Gandhi. So one of, the, um, one of the imperial peripherals, if we can call them that, although I don't want us to start talking about... I, I don't... This is really difficult to kind of bring a term into a sphere and then try not to... Um, have it articulated as a subject position. It's very interesting, last night I was at um, the first set of events that were part of uh, New World Summit organized by BAC, and, um, and, and as many of you will know, uh, Maria Halavayova has been working on this development of new vocabularies. And I think that whilst I understand the politics of her rationale for that, I think it's quite dangerous to develop new vocabularies. So please, nobody go out after what I've been talking about and say, I'm on the imperial periphery, or uh, he's on the imperial oh! periphery. Sorry, I was being too... Sorry, I was being too... too dancey on my chair. It's because... All right, OK. So I mustn't get too excited. OK. Oh! Right, where am I? Because I think um, the um, because I think it's really complicated. Oh God, that's a really good question. It's it's dangerous because it stops us. I think once we uh, have a have a, a term in our heads, um, it, it's happened with terms like queering, for instance, where um, where where it, it stands in for a set of complex concerns that um, need far more explanation. And so it's, it's like it shortens, it, it, it produces a shorthand, a vocabulary that we feel that we can use. And of course, we are free to use whatever we want to use. I mean, it's not like, I can't place a ban on anything. But, um, but, but I, I feel that there is a sense in which um, to, 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 to use phrases over simply um, takes away the ambivalence and dangerousness in their affiliations as well, which we, we need to hold on to. So there's always a danger in kind of going, oh, let's talk about the imperial periphery. But anyway, I mean, it's a kind of, it's like a self-repeating loop that, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, it's like free thought, you know, it's like, <laughs> Oh, free thought. I know what that is. You know, and actually, it's much more comp it's, um, We all have this. I mean, good God, I'm sitting next to a man in charge of communication. I mean, you know. Yeah. Please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are you talking about my talk? Or? No, no, no. Okay. Right. Okay. So, where was I? I've read all that. 
Sorry, my, the dropping of my computer has made a... Ah, yeah, okay. So, this, so here's an example. Here's, here's, here's an example. This is a very ambivalent example. So one of the examples Leela Gandhi talks about is a guy called Charles, Charles Freer Andrews, C.F. Andrews, who I know about because um, he uh, worked with Tagore at Shantanaketan for a long time as a kind of administrator of the Tagore school and because uh, Tagore set up Shantanaketan and Srinaketan I can talk more about I don't want to talk too much about Tagore because it will take up too much time. But he set up this utopian school, this arts and crafts-based school, as I've said, in West Bengal, um, about 100 miles uh, north of Calcutta, in, in order to produce a, a non-caste-based education. I will talk about it a little bit more later. Um, and, and he gathered around him a set of people that were kind of acolytes that, because there was a deep spiritual belief in Shantanaketan. Um, and uh, and and also kind of hero worshippers because Tagore was a hero. He was a Brahmin. He was a Zaminda. He was a kind of prince. Um, he was rich. Well, he was rich when he started. By the end of his life, he'd given all his money to the school and was going on endless world tours, talking to people um, that are not in the imperial periphery in order to raise money to send it back to Shantanaketan. So he was doing lectures to, you know, uh, you know, rich people in New York. Uh, in order to kind of raise money to send it back to the school that was struggling by the end of his life financially. But, um, uh, and I'm sure curators in the room will completely recognise that uh, kind of money-making uh, necessity to tour the world and to say, I'm doing this really interesting project uh, around um, unlearning. It's really sexy, give me £100,000. Not saying that's what you do, but anyway. Right, so... So, so this is an example, and I'm going to go into this example because I think it's interesting because it shows the kind of ambivalence of the position. Um, but we can all recognise, I think it will be recognisable. Okay, so, so Charles Freer Andrews, C.F. Andrews, was a Church of England priest. He trained at Oxford. Um, and the first thing he did um, when, when, and he was a Christian missionary, okay? So there already we have a whole set of complexities and problems. Um, and one of the first things he did as Christian missionary was go to Africa um, to spread the word. Um, and there he met um, uh, a man called Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and he identified um, with, through Mahatma Gandhi, through the, f the more famous Gan Gandhi than Leela Gandhi, he... Hello? Are you all right? <laughs> have, you not have you not read... I don't, you don't want me to start again. Nobody wants me to start again. Okay, uh, so, um, so he, he met Mahatma Gandhi, the C.F. Andrews, and in this meeting, he began to recognize that um, he became a close friend, and he began to recognize and identify with, India, with Indian independence, even though he was in Africa. He, he spent a lot of time um, persuading Gandhi to go to India, to go back to India, to, to develop um, uh, Indian independence. And, and most importantly, both men um, were very, uh, were very um, attached to and developed together the cause of uh, AISMA or nonviolence. So there was, a, there was a, very, um, a very important affiliation between them. And of course, nonviolence, as we were talking about earlier, actually, is, uh, has, has a kind of Christian root funnily enough, not played out in the history of Christianity, but, um, but you know, uh, is, you know, is, you know, people like C.F. Andrews would have said that nonviolence comes from the Bible, comes from Christianity. Um, and so what Andrews did um, uh, in India was he set up unions, largely Christian unions, um, and he also, um, he also uh, supported and uh, pretty much kind of organized, so not at that forefront, but the organized, he administrated what became the Indian National Congress. Um, and he also um, helped resolve uh, strikes, so very importantly, a cotton strike that happened in the early um, part of the 20th century in Madras. Um, and he also um, uh, worked very, very strongly on, um, on uh, anti-Dalit um, uh, uh, um, um, uh, 
violence and racism. So he, was, he, he became very strongly anti-caste, but worked in the background, worked as somebody who supported uh, famous figures and organized. So he organized unions, he organized and administrated um, for political forms, that, um, including those of Gandhi. So he was also very uh, influential uh, in the organization of the Salt March. Um, and then eventually he, he came to Shantanaketan and worked with Tagore to develop um, Tagore's work there. Um, uh, he, he eventually disagreed with Gandhi, actually, around anti-imperialism, particularly around the uh, First World War. And I didn't know this about Gandhi. One of the things that's been interesting researching this is to find out um, uh, that Gandhi actually changed his opinion around non-violence. There might be Gandhi experts in there. I can't cross my legs because then my computer will fall over. Sorry, recording. It's like a completely irrelevant piece of information. Um, so he, he, um, he Gandhi, uh, during the first, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the First World War, actually said that, um, his, uh, that, that his followers should fight. Um, so he kind of changed this, this, uh, this non-violent uh, um, um, affiliation. Um, and C.F. Andrews opposed Gandhi publicly on this. Um, and uh, uh, I found out uh, this morning when I was just checking on Andrews that he was elected president of the All India Trade Union in 1925. So he became quite an important figure, but a figure that was very much um, an organizational figure. Okay. So... What Leela Gandhi says is this, and again, I'm going to quote her, and again, a, quite a long quote. Many of the characters and groups who have populated the histories I've been looking at were excluded both from the established public spheres and the orthodox revolutionary politics of their own time. So back in the, the, the seat of empire, back in the empire, oh, yes, thank you, thank you. Oh. So back in the empire, um, uh, C.F. Andrews was considered a freak. He was also gay. He also dressed very simply. So he took on the, the, uh, the, the, the instructional form of dress that Gandhi espoused for his followers. And he was seen as a kind of, kind of mad guy, you know, who was sexually dubious, who had turned native effectively. So, so back in the heart of empire, he was completely... Um, he was completely pushed aside. So as Leela Gandhi says, the ethico-political aspirations of late Victorian anti-imperial utopian socialists like C.F. Andrews were dismissed as immature or non-realistic by their more institutionally oriented and pragmatic socialist peers. Now, who identifies with this? I bet there are many people in this room who have been dismissed as... Yeah, there's one next to me, who have been dismissed as, uh, let me just read it again, uh, 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 immature and non-realistic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and me. I know exactly that feeling. Okay. Um, so, so this, so I'm going to carry on with the, with, with, um, with, uh, um, it's this kind of, it's this, um, it's this uh, infantilization, yeah, that, that people, that, that actually um, is one of the dangers of, of working and being on the imperial periphery, that you are in, infantilized, you know. Artists, by, I mean, artists are always infantilized anyway. I mean, that's a condition of being an artist. Then on top of that, to be infantilized because you're not, you know, you're, you're not conditioned by the art market or you're not making work or you're, you know, you're, you know we all... I'm sitting in Casco, okay, I don't need to say these things, okay. So, so to carry on, this is, this is um, uh, to carry on with Leela Gandhi. In the 20th century, she says, the ethical radicalism of, colon of colonized populations who did not have access to a free public sphere was likewise dismissed by colonial political thinkers as merely pre-political or even non-political. As it happened, all these groups, utopian and anti-colonial, were themselves fairly critical of the available forms of mainstream or institutional politics. Okay, so that is also something that we could perhaps um, identify. Carrying on, quoting Leela Gandhi, I'd been working on post-colonial theory for a while and had begun to weary of the... Oh, I've read that bit. The East-West, la la la. Okay, right. So... 
there's a, there's a, th these questions of the imperial periphery and um, care of the self wound through this research project that I carried out with Grant and a number of other artists and curators um, over a year between 2013 and 2014, which involved making exhibitions. That was what Grant did. And uh, he didn't only do that, but I'm just saying that I can't make exhibitions. And um, uh, I mean, I don't have the skills to make exhibitions rather than I'm kind of ideologically opposed to making exhibitions. Um, Although I might be, uh, uh, and um, uh, but he, so so he so there was a kind of um, there were a set of exhibitions and talks and groups and we 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 kind of we worked in London we worked in Berlin and we worked in um, in Chantanakaten in uh, in West Bengal, so. Three questions wound through our collective research project. This project that its title is Tagore, Visual Cultures, and Tagore Pedagogy and Contemporary Visual Cultures. That's the title of it. Gabriella knows all about it, was very much part of it. So three questions wound through our collective research project, leading up to and in the aftermath of the time we spent at Shantanaketan exploring Tagore and his relationships with these people like C.F. Andrews. And incidentally, the other person that was important to me was a guy called Leonard Elmhurst, who um, had just m married a Whitney, one of the Whitney heiresses in the, uh, in the early 1900s, um, went to work as an agricultural advisor on, for, for Tagore, for Rabindranath Tagore, who was trying to find ways to eradicate malaria and other f and, and, and make um, the local village uh, farming more um, sustainable um, for, them, for themselves. Um, and so uh, Elmhurst went to work with Tagore because he'd met Tagore's son in America where they were training as agro-economists. And then after that, he came to the UK, he was British, and he set up Dartington College of Arts, which is a kind of utopian college, which I, 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 I trained at as a theatre maker. My first degree was there. So there's this kind of weird... So I first came across Tagore because there were, like, drawings by him and stuff all over the campus, and I didn't know who this guy was. So it took about 30 years. There, you know my age. Right, so three questions round around our collective research. The first concerned the politics of curatorial work and the possibility of adequate relationality in the context of the thrusting demand of many contemporary art institutions in Northern Europe and the US for access to overlooked or novel representations of Asian modern and contemporary art. So we're very aware, and this is also something that is... Um, a kind of form of imperial proliferization. We're very aware in going to Shantanaketan, we are very easily recognized and part of an ongoing movement of arts institutions and institutional workers to go and try and find something new, yeah? to mine for new material to, and to bring it back to the institution and commodify it. So, we, so this is one of the dangers of the imperial periphery. Okay? So, so that, that was one of the first things. So not only had we witnessed many deliberate exhibitions, deliberative exhibitions and seen artworks and their authors scaled up, both in terms of visibility and economic visibility and viability within the West and within their institutions, but also the increased influence of Asian, Latin American or Chinese collectors circles on the display decisions of public and private museums and galleries in the West. Yeah? So this is also part of the, the materiality of biennales and large um, exhibition halls um, now that you know they have specialist collector circles that fund and tell them that they need to be interested. They sniff you know, something new in uh, Bali or whatever. We wonder if we could inhabit, we wondered if we could inhabit that space that worked in a different way, using the institutions we worked in and were affiliated with to develop distinct forms of practice based on acknowledging our setting within paradigms of power and economic imperialism and finding ways to work between these zones of power on projects that altered both what was to be seen in art, altered us, but more fundamentally, um, altered how production itself might shift from, value, from, a, from the value system it seemed to be stuck within. I'm moving towards this concept of value. 
And this is maybe something that you will pick up as well, not value, but the idea of the curator. Um, so uh, that was our first question, it's a long one. The second one um, concerned education. And again, this is something that uh, Nora and I have uh, shared um, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, politics around. Specifically, and, and also, of course, Aneta very importantly. Specifically, we were interested in Shantanikaitan and its partner rural reform centre, Srinikaitan, and the politics of Tagore's attempt to develop arts-based learning at a non-caste and relatively open physical and conceptual site in the context of India in 1901. So this is a pretty radical move he was making, even though he was completely privileged or just because he was completely privileged. Here, a strand of Indian modernism was developed in a cosmopolitan milieu that attracted artists and intellectuals from all over the world in the context of a move towards liberational decolonization. Although, of course, in 1901 in India, it would have presumably seemed a long way away. Particularly in Bengal, of course, there's a very strong Naxalite movement, a very strong communist movement. Uh, you know, it was seen as a pretty revolutionary state. But our interest in pedagogy was also fueled by the fact that today, many major museums and galleries have taken up the language of knowledge production and are interested in using exhibitions and their related programs to produce new forms of alternative or non-state curricular-driven education. And I think also, I'm going to come to Annette in a minute because I think this relates to your, your hidden curriculum. In this, many inventive and knowledgeable curators have made links with modernist traditions of alternative schooling. This is a complex situation in no small part due to the fact that European arts funding is increasingly intertwined with the production of impactful knowledge and training outputs. And Gabriela will also be familiar with this language from, from the Dutch Art Institute. It's interesting that um, Maria Halavayova told me last night at uh, the New World Summit that back across the road is opening an academy. Okay, I, I say no more. In addition, partly as a cause of the introduction of fees in the UK context and in the modularization of the Bologna process in Europe, a rise in DIY, do-it-yourself academies and alternative art schools is evident across Europe and the States, many springing from, uh, although also expanding away from, the art school model of the 1960s and its fabled aesthetic freedoms. One of the critical aspects of Tagore's experimentation at Shantanikaitan would seem to be his commitment to community pedagogy emerging out of what uh, Gayatri Spivak has called aesthetic education. Yet the divide between the provision of education by the state and the increase in alternative schools, often boutique, expensive and difficult to access, was of great concern to us. Um, as it was for many of Tagore's critics. And many of Tagore's critics also pointed out that this was kind of, actually, Shantanikaitan was for Calcutta's rich elite. And a few Dalits were employed. Yeah. So there's, I mean, I've written actually in this publication about um, the critics of, of this. So there's lots of information on it. So our third question, when we were doing this research, has really informed my idea of the imperial periphery, or Leela Gandhi's idea. Our third question concerned material culture, or the production of materialities, as I might put it. As curators and art educators, we're increasingly inquisitive of the political weight of signification brought to bear on materialities, especially but not only in the field of art. Tagore and his teachers placed great emphasis on processes of crafting and expression at Shantanikaitan, something we found still palpable in the contemporary art school there, a very traditional art school. You go in and people are chipping away at blocks of wood. They don't do that at Goldsmiths. I don't know why I don't work there anymore. Yeah. These different traditions of teaching and making from the concept, from the making of the thing, how and should they be recon reconciled at a, a political level? So these are the three things that we were, we were interested in. Okay. So um, far be it from me to suggest that Grant, myself, and my friends are at the imperial periphery. We are too closely and firmly rooted in normative processes of artistic and curatorial production and circulation. 
And um, so therefore we can't really be at the imperial periphery. However, in the passing back and forth between positions, we may be able to push further this possibility. More so, I think, there are people, and perhaps Nora, Anata, Aneta, and the Casco team inhabit this space. Nora through her activism and process of working with free, free thought, Aneta with her hidden curriculum as one of the projects. And Casco's continual systematization of working equality and I would also say um, interested in kind of spiritual aspects of the self. We're sitting in a, is it an ex-convent or an ex-monastery, this building? Ex-monastery. Ex-monastery, okay. Um, uh, so I think that some of these projects come close to what I'm trying to describe. I'm going to quote Aneta now. So this is, this is about hidden curriculum. <laughs> and you say you've published it, so you can't deny it. Right, so, so she says, and I, I think this is very interesting and important in relationship to practices of self-working, we could call. She says, I understand a hidden curriculum as something that evolves from the interaction between social, political, and economical conditions of schooling inside and outside the school institution, and the process of learning a very specific student situation at a certain place and time. As a consequence, it is not necessary, not, it is not necessarily me as a teacher, her as a teacher, artist or researcher who would know about it, but the students themselves who are able to find out about it. Thus, I claim to use my ignorance deliberately to engage in a collaborative investigation and experiment around hidden curricula. The important thing for me about an artist's work um, uh, from what I know about it is that uh, the sites of its production are not alternative academies and experimental free schools, but are state education systems where, where she works. And I, I, I think this is precisely what working within institutions might mean, I think is a very good example. I've got five minutes, okay. Right, so I've got a, a list of other people that I think um, might be, uh, might be uh, imperial peripheral. Okay, so, so one person I think of is, um, and, and many of you will, will know these people, so Jana Graham, I think, works often in this way. Jana Graham is currently the, oh, I don't know what her exact title is, but she's, she works in the kind of education and research programs at Nottingham Contemporary uh, Gallery in Nottingham in the UK. She has a long uh, affiliation with working within institutions to produce um, different spaces and thoughts, and I think... Nora also works with her very closely. Um, and actually, Jana Graham is, is part of Ultra Red. And I think another person that's taught me hugely about this is a long conversation I've had with Robert Semba, who is another member of Ultra Red, who are the kind of uh, radical sound art activist collective that were formed initially um, through AIDS activism in the 1980s. Um, Robert um, has worked for a long time within healthcare, but does a lot of work in the voguing community um, uh, of New York and works with drug addiction um, because of his nursing and his uh, med medical background, but also through his artistic background. So I think there's something very interesting about the way in which he works within the framework of conventional medical performance uh, but works within communities that would see themselves as radically other from it. So that's an example. Um, there's a very important artist um, that I came across in, um, in India who was employed as a teacher at, Ram, uh, at um, Shantanaketan called Ramkinkar Baij and I think he's also very interesting because he, well, he's dead now but he was a Naxalite so he was a communist but he was also working within, uh, there was a very strong Naxalite community in, in Bengal as I've said, he was also working within the structures of the village communities to help themselves organise and working with with art students to do so, so there's a kind of a, a kind of circularity there. I would name Louise Shelley, who works at the showroom, as the uh, as as the person who develops the the the, the project um, at the showroom, which is a kind of gallery institution in London, um, uh, called uh, God. It's completely escaped me, and it is called. Uh, 
communal knowledge. Thank you, everybody. Right. Um, then I think uh, so. Then, but then I think we have to kind of depart from the art world and say actually the real models here are people that work in social work, in medicine, um, and in education. And one of the people that, as soon as I read Lila Gandhi's understanding of the, the imperial periphery, I immediately thought of uh, was a woman that I'm now um, interviewing for a book I'm writing, who is the who is the um, who's the uh, headmistress of the state school that my kids went to uh, for their primary education. So in the UK, that's between five and 11. And it was a state school that at the time they went to, uh, it, 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 um, we lived in a very poor borough. The borough is called Hackney, and it is still very poor, um, but it has very, very rich areas in it. And over the course of the six, well, actually longer than that, because I had two kids. I have two kids, I don't know. Um, they, I, still, I still own them. Um, they, they, um, they, they, over the course of the time they were there, the school went from 80% free school meals. This is a kind of a rendering of poverty within, you know, if you, so that's 80% that's of the kids that were at the school received free school meals because they were below the poverty bracket. And Anta, you'd know all about this. And now it's only 30%. So that's the kind of gentrified shift that's happened in the borough that... I was fortunate enough to, to be able to move into when I also didn't have any money. Um, and, um, and what this headmistress did, she was a woman called Diane Room that in the 1980s was part of a very radical and marginalized set of the Labour Party that was then more left-wing than it is now, called Militant Tendency. She moved from that position. Um, militant Tendency was a kind of um, a cell within the Labour Party that was eradicated um, in the 1980s, largely by Margaret Thatcher. Um, uh, she then went from that position. It, she said, OK, the next site of my political work is primary school education in a poor borough in inner-city London. And there she defended kids for 30 years. She defended kids against uh, racism, uh, against um, caste and class violence, and more and more and more against the introduction of money that completely alienated them uh, within their cultural life. So she, I think people like this are the models that we need to look at in order to understand our role within what is a much more marginalised and I would argue much less important sector of work, which is in the arts. Um, maybe I'll leave it there. No, I'm just going to read you this bit. I know I'm over time and I'm sorry. Okay, I just want to get to devaluation and management because I think it's really important. So in order to accept this mode, I suggest we need to go through a profound political system of devaluation. So not finding other values to counter the values that are produced by the market, by the uh, circulation of commodities within it that include our bodies and ourselves, um, but devaluation. So understanding how to work against the systematization of value that is endemic within our culture and is super produced within the art world, okay? We reflect it back and we reflect it with more dollar signs at the end, okay? Um, in order to do so, it is essential not simply to decolonize ourselves of the artistic value system through which we work, but more importantly, to manage change within our organizations to this effect. And I think this is kind of what Casco have been doing uh, in their process. Uh, so contemporary art and its production facilities. Um, you think we should manage change? Yes, I think we should manage change. I think we should take up management. I think management is the site of political change, yeah? Um, rather than making exhibitions about what's wrong with the world, I think we should manage mm -hmm. in the small bit of the world we have, which, you know, is not very influential and is on the sidelines and, you know, but, you know, therefore has some power in a way. It is, is in a way, a place to imperially proliferate. Right. So, art's value is historically shown. I'm going to miss that out. Okay. Devaluation, just one more paragraph, in the system of artistic production needs to be thought through at a number of levels and circumstances. To begin with, the process of educating artists to aspire to forms of autonomous individuality in procedures that mark their artworks apart from others would need to be dismantled. Okay. 
So maybe that's what the Dutch, Dutch Art Institute is trying to do at the moment, but most art schools don't. There are many important ways in which artistic skills can be used in different ways to develop projects that do not necessitate individualized value as a form of capital expansion, but at the same time, artists need to be able to eat. There are many good uses for which the spaces, equipment, and pedagogical skills embedded in art schools can be repurposed. But they, will not, but they still need to be lit and kept warm. The issue of funding and economic survival remains. How might artistic financial mechanisms of investment be transformed in terms of value, in terms of moving into a gray zone around their own imperialization uh, without being eradicated or so marginalized that they have no power whatsoever? So such a suggestion of devaluation, um, they have, they, these suggestions have a recognizable history within the productivist movement in the USSR in the early 1920s. Of course, many people have tried to re, re, rethink value before and, and practice it, but also within non-artistic forms of seeking to defer value or devalue in the name of equality, such as the workers' movement of the 19th century in Europe. Um, all those people that Leela Gandhi has referred to in her work. And of course, contemporary calls for degrowth from high-profile environmental campaigners are also aligned with this tactic. So within environmentalism, there are tactics that, 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 that could be close to it. So to be on the imperial periphery, peri I can't even say it now, to be on the imperial periphery, arguably, is to reconstitute oneself and one's habitus through a process of devaluation, to refuse to claim center ground, but instead to act in support with one's knowledge and expertise. Yet art institutions constantly compete through the management of value, bringing the peripheral into the center, administering, administering attention on the minor. This is a problem. In the field of contemporary art, as elsewhere, management has seized power methodologically, eroding glitches and inconsistencies. And it also erodes spaces to be improvisatory and mistaken. Administration is thus a site of politics, and its workers are those that can produce political reversals. So I'll just end there and say that that's the important thing, that management, rather than being conditioned through processes of managerialism that are endemic within the arts funding structures. You know, you need to be like this, you need to have one of these, you need to have a board. So for instance, um, in the UK to receive money from the Arts Council, you need to be a charity, you can't be a co-op, you cannot be a collective, okay? So that immediately annuls political forms and processes that are the very processes that we might need to turn to as managerial forms. This has nothing to do with what goes on in, in it's, it's the politics of the building that we need to look at. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks. Sorry, I went on so long. Yeah. And it's collective also to your appeal to avoid uh, uh, use new vocabulary, yeah. bring new concepts so yeah. easily. And I don't know, like not uh, everyone knows about those individuals that you yeah. mentioned, like Louis Shelley and Yanagram. And but by knowing them, um, I'm yeah. I'm getting more what you are talking about yeah. in terms of management. It, yeah. in, in this has to do with us. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, comes with uh, self-work. But, but self-work in relationship to the imperial center. So it's rather than to say, let's go outside and let's pretend there's an outside. It's to recognize actually there's power. And so it's, but it's difficult and it's also boring work as well. Yeah, it's really boring. <laughs> Hello, I'm not sure, are we asking questions? At this oh, point, no, I think I think I've <laughs> cleverly overrun so much that nobody can ask me a question. Um, I just had one question, which is um, perhaps not a particularly relevant question, but it was about whether you felt that there was any process of creolization going on between the periphery and the centre in terms of institutional, the potentialities for institutional 
devaluation, as you were talking about? I mean, is there that process at all? or What, creolisation? Yeah. yeah. Do, can, you, can you combine it in any way to make it interesting? Or yeah. is it... Or, or is it not? Well, I, I, I mean, uh, I mean, it would take a longer conversation because I think creolization has a very distinct history and has been used also politically. Um, and I, Gandhi, what creolization? It, it's a slightly more affirmative concept in a sense that they're seen as a kind of positive. Yeah, and I think that the the the. Uh, which I'm not dismissing, and I think it also historically is cited somewhere very particular as well, and of course comes out of a different tradition of anti-colonial thought and 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 um, and uh, uh, melange or mesquitage. I mean, it, it belongs to a whole kind of which clearly you probably know much more about than I do. But I think that um, that the idea of um, in my not my understanding of creolization, it was seen as a very kind of positivist thing. It is seen, you know, we can we can bring together, we can readapt, we can move forward with this, we can celebrate together this new form, this new aesthetic, this new. I mean, I would understand it aesthetically, but there would be many other ways of politically. Whereas I think the imperial pro pro proliferally um, actually is a is is more, more kind of ambivalent than that in a sense and it's much more it's difficult not to say that creolization isn't difficult but it it produces difficulty it's almost like she brings these two terms together in order to produce difficulty in order for it not to make it easy for us um to just kind of go oh yeah if we if we if we get some you know black kids in to the gallery everything will be cool you know and that's the problem yeah that's a real problem it's a real problem in the uk